Right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the great lockdown debate, the COVID case count surging in many parts of the country. Yesterday, Ontario imposed a one-month lockdown in that province. It kicks in today. Ontario residents received an emergency alert on their cell phones saying, stay at home, do not go outside except for essential reasons. Here's Ontario Premier Doug Ford. Today, on the advice of the Chief Medical Officer of Health, I'm declaring a state of emergency with a province-wide stay-at-home order, effective 12.01 a.m. Thursday. This will be in effect for four weeks. All right, the lockdown is on in Ontario, and here's the question. Should British Columbia do the same thing? COVID cases are spiking here, too, but a 1,000 new cases a day. The COVID variants circulating in the province as well. Okay, let's discuss it now. We've got both sides of it for you. Dr. Yanir Baryam is an MIT-trained scientist. He's a leading voice in the COVID zero movement. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Dr. Bariam, thanks for coming on again. Thank you. Okay, also on the line, Brian Lilly, political columnist at the Toronto Sun. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Mike. Okay, guys, let me go live to Ontario first. And Brian, get your reaction to the lockdown imposed in Ontario. What what, what are people saying there? Well, I, I, I think there is a, a sense of frustration over the fact that we are facing a third lockdown and a harder lockdown than we have seen thus far. Um, it is something that, you know, myself and others, I, you know, I, I think broadly speaking, I believe that the, the population still does support lockdowns to a degree or some restrictions, but there is starting to be a crumbling because as the weather gets better, they're telling us to stay inside our homes. So yeah. even uh, outdoor dining, uh, which the, there is little evidence that outdoor dining with proper precautions is a, a determinant of spread, and, and yet that is shut down. Um, do you oppose it? Do you oppose, that, the, that do you oppose the lockdown? Do you oppose what they're doing? I don't oppose restrictions. I, I do oppose uh, lockdown as being the only tool. It can't be the only public health tool. And when you look around the world, when you look around North America, and you see how different jurisdictions have handled this, um, there is no evidence that says lockdowns are the only tool. Some jurisdictions that have locked down harder than Ontario in the past have done worse than Ontario in terms of containing spread. Uh, Others that, that have not locked down as hard have done better. Okay. There's got to be an examination of public health measures rather than just saying it's all locked down or it's open everything up. I don't okay. think either one of those is accurate. Dr. Bariam, your thoughts? So the main problem is that it shouldn't be about the lockdown. It should be about the exit strategy. right? We, why are we doing these yo-yo lockdowns? Atlantic Canada has achieved elimination and they don't have lockdowns. So has New Zealand and Australia and Taiwan and, and Singapore and, and et cetera, China included. Um, the whole point is that we have the ability to achieve elimination. There was a mistake made at the beginning of this pandemic where people assumed that there was this idea of the horse leaves the barn. And it's just wrong. This should be thought about like a fire. You don't put down a fire a little bit and then walk away from it and let it burn back up. Okay, so, so what you, we're doing, 
what yeah, we're so doing you, with you these lockdowns is just yeah. that. Okay, so you believe that a, a total strict uh, measures, complete lockdown, would quickly eliminate the virus? Ex- absolutely. And what he said, I'm sorry, I, I, what was just said about you need all of the public health measures is exactly right. Because what you're doing is you're doing, it's like there are a whole set of tools. You have to restrict travel in the appropriate way, and you have to, uh, the, the best thing is to quickly isolate people. You mentioned this business about transmission in, in, in restaurants, uh, in outdoor restaurants, but the whole point is that the major transmission is always within families. But if you transmit from family to family by having outdoor dining, then you end up having more transmission in the okay. community. Okay, so Brian Lilly. put everything together in order to get things to get to be successfully dealt with. Brian Lilly, what, what's going on with the schools in Ontario? Are schools shut down? They're not. Uh, school, sorry, school, schools are shut down in, in certain areas. Uh, Toronto and Peel, which is the suburban communities just uh, west of Toronto, have shut down. In other areas, they have not. Um, what know, do you I, think of that? I, I actually believe that schools remaining open, considering the protocols that have put in place, have been, uh, they've been very effective at keeping kids safe. There is limited transmission within schools. Uh, but, you know, as far as what Dr. Bariam just said, comparing us to Atlantic Canada or to Australia or New Zealand is, is simply not fair. And I'll explain why. Uh, Atlantic Canada was shut off from international travel in March of last year. Now, I, I think there should have been better border screening earlier on. There should have been a quarantine order earlier on. We didn't have a quarantine order for incoming travelers until March 25th of last year, two months after our first case came in. The screening prior to that was incredibly weak. But on March 16th, when Justin Trudeau announced that we were shutting the border, Atlantic Canada was shut off from external uh, international flights. We still had them landing in Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, and Montreal. That's how the variants especially the, the, the U.K. variant, got yeah. into Canada and in December ravaged a nursing home with more than 100 deaths just north of Toronto. Uh, we, if we had done those measures early on, yeah. we might have been different. But trying to say that, uh, that we can be like Atlantic Canada when they had measures in place by the federal government that were not offered to the rest of the provinces is, is simply false. We have to deal with a okay. different reality. Dr. Bariam, your thoughts? Yeah, so he's exactly right. It's not that there is a different reality. It's that we have to align the realities. There is an opportunity. The opportunity exists in, the, in Canada as a whole if one makes a decision. Right? This is the problem. There is really a choice. We are controlling the outbreak. When it goes up, it's because of what we do. When it goes down, it's because of what we do collectively. We cannot make that decision individually. But collectively, we have control over this virus. So the point is the following. If we make a choice that we want to achieve elimination today, we make that choice that we want to make that, do that today, then within four to six weeks, we can have this virus gone from Canada. And the way you do that is by opening up, by suppressing the virus and opening up green zones. There are parts of the provinces across Canada that can probably open up within a couple of weeks, but taking four weeks to six weeks, it's a small investment. We've been doing this for a year. We could have done that a long time ago, 
but we can also do that today. All right, welcome back to the show. Ontario just imposed that one-month lockdown. Should British Columbia do the same thing? Dr. Yanir Bari and Brian Lilly are my guests. Let's go to your phone calls now and speak to Daryl in Coquitlam. Hey, Daryl. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Mike, I believe that you're from southern Ontario, and I talked to friends of mine in Metro Toronto. You cannot compare Metro Vancouver and Metro Toronto. Toronto is still home to 20% of Canada's GDP. There are massive factories in Mississauga, warehousing. There's Linamar, there's Magna International, Chrysler, Ford, GM, food processing plants. Yeah, yeah, what's your point? We don't have those here. They have got workers who are stacked together in factories, and it is spreading within factories. Those workers take that virus home, and it spreads within families. That's why you have such a huge problem in a place like southern Ontario that you do not have in Metro Vancouver. Okay, Dr. Barry. reaction from your experts. Dr. Barriam, what do you think of that? So the main problem with the discussion is not that there is transmission. The main problem is focusing on some idea of a trade-off. Underlying these ideas is the idea that we have to trade off economics versus the health. And the point is that we've been demonstrated around the world that if we achieve elimination, the economy recovers. So it's much better to stop whatever activities are taking place that are causing transmission. And by stopping that transmission, we can get to zero. And then we can open up normally to economic and social activities. There are great analyses out of France. A French economist recently, we can look them up, and they just basically say exactly that. The countries that have achieved elimination have been the countries that have been least affected economically, and that's what we should be doing. Brian Lilly, what do you think of that? The countries that have been able to achieve elimination um, tend to be ones that are islands that are are, are kept apart. Uh, We're not in that situation. Neither is much of Western Europe, neither is much of the United States. I I, I will say that, you know, your caller is right. There is a lot of spread in these factories. And I've spent the past couple of days looking at why the the medical officer of health for Peel region, the, the Mississauga, Brampton area, just west of Toronto, where a lot of these food processing plants and light manufacturing are happening, why he's been rejecting offers from companies to say, let us help you in vaccinating workers. He wants to do it solely by age. So on the one hand, they're saying the hotspots are these uh, distribution centers, these food processing plants, and then they spread it in multi-generational housing, and that's how people in their 70s end up in hospital, and we've got to deal with this. And yet when the companies say, we'll help you, they keep saying no. Uh, We've got to, uh, you know, deal with this in a realistic way. Okay. Uh, But but by the way, this only just a bit behind Ontario. Yeah, let's take another call here. Let's take another call yeah, here real quickly, Dr. Bariam. Hang on a sec. Let's yeah. go to Nancy on the line in Vancouver. Go ahead, Nancy. Um, hi, yes. Thank you for having me on the sure. show. Um, my concern is, um, you know, I'm a parent, and my big concern is whenever there's talks about these lockdowns and everything, I have a really, really big concern that things will end up like last year where we had, you know, two months where kids were not going to school. There's some parts of the states where kids still aren't in school. Yeah. And I think it's detrimental to the children that they need to be in school for the families, for the children. And I don't understand why there's not an option set in place where people have choice. There okay. should be a choice for people to have kids in school. And then also for the people who don't want to have kids in school, there should be support for them to have online schooling at home, which has already been set up. That allows for the teachers 
who are afraid and don't really want to be in the classroom, that they can be in charge of the online learning that's distant. And okay, then the Dr. children Bar- want to Do- go to school. Thank you. Dr. Baryam, what do you think? Should the schools be shut down? Uh, so the problem is that people are just also not aware. There's been a lot of discussion about schools and transmission, and the idea that schools are not transmitting, kids are not infected, is just wrong. Many kids are asymptomatic, but they get long COVID. And long COVID in about a third of children means long-term disability. And we do not know the extent of it, but we know from SARS, and we had the experience with SARS in Canada, where people 10 years later, uh, longer than 10 years later, are disabled. And we know that the UK variant, now dominant, now uh, expanded in, in Canada, is much more severe for children than the original variant. The kids are more symptomatic, they're more transmitting, so the idea that schools should be open because of the benefits to children, which I totally understand, is not referencing the existing circumstance of the disease and the harm that this disease is causing okay. both to children and to the community. Brian Lilly, your thoughts? Look, I I watch the data from the Ontario government like a hawk. I I look at the open source data. I, I understand concerns around the variant, but I also look at the uh, the measures that have been put in place, the number of outbreaks that happen. You know, a, a good chunk of the outbreaks that are reported as being school outbreaks in Ontario are children who contract COVID while they're doing virtual learning because. I didn't realize BC doesn't have that option. In Ontario, you do. You can well, we do. Well, we do have the we do have or, the option, but we do have the option. Okay. But some people think it's not as it's not widely enough available. Let me squeeze so in one more call it, here. It's very widely available. If I can just say this, Mike. Yeah. The idea that if we just lock down one more time, that this is going away, is not borne out by two weeks to flatten the curve, one more lockdown, one more lockdown. There are just locking down controls the disease until you open up or until exactly. the population is vaccinated. But just continually saying locking okay, hang down. Okay, hang on, guys. I'm going, to, I'm going to insist you don't talk over each other. Dr. Bariam, go ahead. We're just running out of time here. Go ahead. Yeah, the point is that if you open up when they still have transmission in the community, if you open up uh, by sector, if, you, if it doesn't work. If you open up geographically by regions that don't have the disease, you contain progressively the disease to smaller and smaller areas, and then you're I live in Toronto. I live in Toronto, and I have been locked down since November 23rd, doctor. And guess where the transmission continues to happen? In Toronto, where I haven't been able to get a haircut, where I can't go anywhere except stay at home. So the idea that just locking down handles it. But we know that they're only halfway locked down. But if you do things halfway... Should they come to my home time, and weld me in like China? If you, you can talk about, talk about New Zealand and Australia. They had Islands. lockdowns that were... Yeah, but the point is you can get... If you do go all out, do the calculation, you can get to 12% reduction per day in number of cases. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the highly contagious Brazil variant of the COVID virus circulating as particularly in British Columbia. Top US, U.S. health expert now uh, warning Canada uh, that the country is acting too slowly and British Columbia in particular not acting with enough urgency with the P1 variant of the virus circulating in our province. Very pleased to welcome Dr. Eric Feigl-Ding. He's an epidemiologist and adjunct senior fellow with the Federation of American Scientists. Dr. Ding, thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it a lot. Can you tell us about this uh, P1 variant and why it's uh, so dangerous? Yeah, the P1 variant first cropped up in Brazil. And Brazil, we thought, already had hit herd immunity because they already were 75% affected in many places. But then it surged back and it kept infecting people and causing huge, huge surges. And this P1 variant now is the one that's taken over Brazil and causing this cataclysmic mortality there. And P1 is, we think, is more transmissible, anywhere from 2 to 2.5x more transmissible. That would make it faster in transmission than B117 variant from the UK. And I can't uh, emphasize that enough because you know, we've seen this uh, grow faster being the B117 in British Columbia and in Alberta as well. And this is faster and it possibly has more reinfection potential as in your previous infection may not protect you as much. And um, it's possibly more severe. And this is why it's incredibly concerning. And regardless of how you feel about it, uh, P1 is the one that's worrying the world and what has led to the CDC to presumably add the actual warning for people coming to Canada because B117 is already in the U.S. They wouldn't create a warning just for that. Right. We're starting to get more understanding of, the, of these variants and the threat that they posed. And you mentioned how this one originated in Brazil and you called it cataclysmic, the situation there. Can you, um, can you describe what's happening there? Like, are, you know, how many people have died? What are the, yeah. What's the situation like in the hospitals there? Yeah, the hospitals are completely overrun in almost every single state. Uh, we're talking about 90, 95, 100% ICU capacity in almost the entire country. It is almost unheard of. Um, and the deaths we're seeing, we had like 4,200 deaths uh, the other day. You know, and U.S. is only like uh, much, uh, only 50% bigger. So that would be like 6,000 deaths a day on a U.S. scale, and likely more because Brazil is even younger. So you would think it had lower mortality. So this is really worrisome. And and doctors are saying that uh, patients are coming in sicker and sicker. They're progressing faster. It's a much more aggressive illness. And and uh, among people who are uh, on ventilators, uh, you know, among young people in ventilators, now the survival is only 50%. It used to be 70 uh, some percent last year, this spring. So it's gotten really, really worrisome and causing huge amounts of deaths. And this is why I've been saying, you know, the world needs to be careful. And what is the largest hotspot outside of uh, South America? British Columbia. And that's why I've been really trying to shout about British Columbia. Wow. Okay. That's incredible. It's, it's fascinating to hear from someone like yourself, who's a, a leading expert in the United States, sort of looking very closely at our home province here. When did this first get on your radar here with the P1 variant in here in BC? Well, it, it was, it's been on my radar that's been cropping up. But on March 22nd, um, 
I think it really alerted my ears that there were 84 cases on one of the um, BC health reports, and none of the 84 cases have international travel. They're all community slash domestic transmission within Canada, and they can't find the source. So of these 84 cases, they knew this back in March 22nd. That's well over two weeks ago. Yet they haven't really done anything. And since 84, it's now over almost 800 cases uh, today. So this is why it's incredibly worrisome. And we should have taken action much sooner um, because this is, this is a highly contagious variant. And it says yeah. many researchers from UK and Brazil. Right. One of the headlines we have here in our province this week is the the outbreak of the virus in the Vancouver Canucks NHL hockey team. We got 25 people infected in the team, including like 21 players and four staff. Uh, the team yesterday disclosed that it was a variant strain of the virus that has caused this outbreak. There's no official confirmation that it's P1, but it's wide, widely suspected the P1 variant is, is what caused this. And and we saw. Would you see that? Would you say that's kind of a graphic example of how how quickly this vi- this particular strain and variant can spread, even among you know young, very he- healthy professional athletes? Yeah, exactly. And uh, many people did say it was P one for the uh, yeah. uh, a couple of days ago. But regardless, this this virus is just that contagious, and it can knock out healthy young athletic adults in their prime professional athletes, right? Some of them were on IV, on IV drips, uh, I'm told, uh, by some of the reporters as well. And I think that so, um, so clearly shows you that given any chance, the virus will spread. And obviously these players mostly are not vaccinated. And the, the other nature of hockey is that uh, hockey, unlike soccer, because of the ice, it creates a thermal inversion over the hockey rink. That means the aerosol, the, the, this airborne virus aerosol, isn't dissipated by just circulating air. It, it's trapped just above the ice. And so this is wow. why this is a very concerning situation. Was it the hockey rink specifically itself, or was it the variants? We don't know uh, yet, uh, but we know that this is very contagious regardless. Speaking to Dr. Eric Feigl-Ding, what do you think British Columbia should do? I think it needs to um, be much more aggressive in making sure there's no indoor gatherings, no indoor dining, no indoor anything other than indoors in your own personal home. Um, and also schools. Schools must be masked. CDC recommends masks. Kids should be masked over the age of five. BC still does not mandate uh, uh, masks for younger kids. And when Dr. Henry uh, said she's updating the rules about fourth graders with masks. She it was very uh, confusing. At first, it seemed like it, w- it wasn't mandatory, and then it seemed mandatory, and now there's a lot of confusion. Just be clear with the general public. You need to. We need to mask kids in school, if not shut them down, if there's a even a bigger outbreak in schools, and really tell people to double mask or wear a premium mask. And avoid indoor gatherings that have airborne transmission because this virus will transmit as fast as it can whenever it gets an opportunity to do so. Dr. Feigelding, you were one of the first U.S. health experts to sound the alarm about the COVID-19 pandemic in, in the very, very early days of this crisis. Are, are you getting like a little bit of deja vu a little bit with this particular uh, Brazilian strain? Yeah, it's a little 
it makes me uneasy, let's just say. Like, it, it hasn't spread to the entire world, um, and it hasn't spread to eastern Canada at all, but it really makes me worry because in certain ways, we don't sequence it enough. Unlike the UK strain, which has a shortcut PCR test, there is no shortcut PCR test for this. You have to sequence, and that's why it takes time. So we're not finding it as often We're not because we're not digging to find it as much. But knowing what's happening in Brazil and its neighboring countries with also ICU capacity surges and deaths, I'm really worried because Brazil had such a horrible outbreak last year that it shouldn't be having another horrible outbreak again in, in many ways. But yet it is. And that just bodes negatively for reinfection. And we're not, we're not quite sure yet for vaccines, but this is one yeah. of those things that keeps me awake at night. Okay, you just anticipated a question there I have for you about the vaccines. We're in a race here in British Columbia and really around the world. It's the vaccine versus the virus and now the now the variants. Do the vaccines work on this P1 Brazil variant? So um, we don't have all the data on the vaccine because some of the AstraZeneca ones was never tested in Brazil and P1 emerged relatively recently. And the mRNA vaccines, we know it neutralizes, but it neutralizes weaker than, uh, than some of the, uh, you know, the common or the UK variant. The UK variant is neutralized pretty well. The, the P1 variant is medium, medium, I would say. The South African one is much worse. But as that said, uh, it seems that the vaccines will likely protect you against severe disease. Now, in terms of total symptomatic or asymptomatic transmission, which is, you know, if you're able to carry it or not to other people, we still have good data on that. And so I'm hopeful, but uh, even the vaccine they're using in Brazil, it's a Chinese one, Coronavac, it's, uh, it's only 50% efficacy. And so we, we really have to be vigilant and hope that the vaccines we have in North America will work against it. But I'm hopeful it will right. for mortality and death. That's the general trend we've seen, even for variants. Final question for you. I just have one minute here for you. Do you think, we just saw the province of Ontario here in Canada impose a, a one-month stay-at-home order yesterday, a pretty strict lockdown. Do you think BC mm -hmm. should do something similar? I think so, um, but I think it depends, you know, what are you willing to do during that time to su support people during the lockdown? I think support during the lockdown is just as important as imposing the lockdown and also the enforcement around it, the social and the public health messaging support. And right now in BC, uh, in BC's health chiefs are much less aggressive than some of the other health chiefs in other parts of Canada. And this is why I'm advocating. Make sure there's no indoor gatherings of any sort and make sure we have mandatory masks for all schools and children over the age of five. And make sure we have premium masks or double masks for people and just be super careful. And because okay. we want to avoid lockdowns, but if we don't have a choice and this is burning out of control, we may have to do so. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Stay safe. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about kids and cops now. And specifically, how do we keep young people out of gangs? Are police programs doing a good job diverting kids away from the gang life? The city of Surrey has just launched a new website designed to steer kids away from gangs. Meanwhile, the continuing battle over police liaison programs in schools. Should cops, should cops be kicked out of schools 
That battle is heating up in Vancouver. Now, last night, the Vancouver School Board deferred a decision on the school liaison officer program to a future meeting. But groups now, a lot of the defund police groups, are trying to get cops out of schools. Have a listen to this now. This is Meenakshi Mano from the Pivot Legal Society talking about getting cops out of schools. From June of last year, we're entering April, and we still haven't seen the removal of cops from schools, despite a global movement about police violence and its impact on marginalized communities. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Doug Spencer. He's a former he's a former Vancouver Police Department detective, 30 years with the Vancouver Police. He now works to keep young people out of gangs, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Doug, thanks a lot for coming on. No problem, Mike. Okay, Doug, let's first of all, let's start a little bit with some of the work you do to keep young people out of gangs. We've got this new website that has just been launched by the city of Surrey to give young people information, try to keep them out of gangs. I don't know, you know, is a, is a website really, really enough or do you need more, uh, more intensive kind of intervention here to keep kids away from gangs? Well, it, it's certainly a start. Um, I mean, kids, some are you know, they, they don't show up to school, so they're hence not going to get the uh, gang or drug presentation from an officer. But, you know, they have to have the information, whether it's online, uh, which a lot of kids seem to use now as computers and phones and stuff to search stuff. But, you know, if they don't know the truth and the consequences of drugs and gangs and stuff, then they're uh, hopelessly not going to make the right decision. Right. They're going to make the decision based on what their peer group are doing and stuff, which is going to lead them down that road. So you have to get them all that information. And, you know, they teach math and uh, sociology and all this stuff in school. But what's more important than knowing about making good decisions when it comes to gangs and drugs and stuff? Those are life changing decisions, right? When you talk to young people, Doug, and you bring your 30 years of experience in speaking to them, and especially kids who are vulnerable, maybe getting into the wrong crowd, what do you find is the most effective message that these kids need to hear? Uh, They need to hear from, uh, at Odd Squad, we get ex-addicts and ex-gang members to do kind of our talking for us, right? Because they're the experts in gangs and uh, drug world so we give them a platform uh, we show them videos and the the gang members and the ex-addicts talk talk to the kids about this is what it did for my life right this is why i i've lived a life to misery so um it, it's just super important but you know you're talking the online thing when you go in person into schools and you meet these kids and you talk to them before, during, and after. You connect with them. Yeah. Right? You're not a computer. They see you as a human. They see you as a resource. So um, they'll come to you out of the blue. They'll come up to these school officers and divulge all this stuff that's going on in their life where they would normally just keep that inside and it would fester, Right. You know what? When I hear the movement to get cops out of schools, the movement to shut down school liaison programs where police officers visit visit schools, and I hear people saying, shut this program down, kick these police officers out of school, 
I just find it kind of mind-boggling. At the same time, we've got an opioid overdose crisis like never before. We've got a gang war raging on the streets of Metro Vancouver. Why would you say now is the time to remove police officers in schools who can help vulner vulnerable kids? Like, are, do gangs, do they recruit kids at school? Yeah, well, back in my day, I in uh, the gang unit and the youth squad youth gang unit we used to hang around the schools during the day and you could actually see the gang members driving around looking to recruit kids we took a number of handguns off kids um and gang members and stuff in and around the schools in vancouver because you know at the time this is back in the bindi joe hall days which pales into comparison now if that's believable um, they are looking for little soldiers to do all their dirty work. And where they find them is at schools, through relatives, through whatever, right? They hear about this kid that's this out there kid. That's the guy they want to go and do their shootings and their robberies and stuff. So you, you have to have officers in those schools because the kids will actually come up and report to the officers what they're seeing. If they feel at yeah. risk or their their classmates at risk, they will divulge and make officers aware of that, where otherwise uh, kids would just disappear out of school. Speaking of Doug Spencer, 30 years with the Vancouver Police Department, he now works to keep kids out of gangs. Hey, Doug, when we take a look at the Vancouver School Board and this decision on the school liaison program that's been in place in Vancouver for 50 years, 50 years this program has been going, and I, I just find it astonishing the school board is uh, considering shutting it down uh, right now. Right now. Uh, there was a meeting last night. Any decision on it was further kicked down the road, and there will be another meeting in late April on it. But we continue to hear growing calls to remove cops from schools. And the opponents of, of the program, a lot of it is the defund the police movement, will say that uh, especially minority kids, kids of color, uh, don't trust the police officers. We've heard claims that police officers are harming these kids in schools. Uh, we hear that kids are being assaulted by police officers in schools. And we hear a lot of this stuff. I mean, what do you think? What do you say about this this program? Yeah, it's vital. It is a lifeline for so many kids. Personally, I know hundreds and hundreds of stories where school officers save kids' lives, right? Um, I can tell you a story. Um, I, I gave a, a gang presentation to an alternate school up on Fraser Street, and there was a, a young South Asian man was there. I didn't really notice him when I was talking to the kids, and he came up to me after, and he said, uh, I hear you know Rick Schaff. And I says, yeah, it's my brother-in-law. And he says, he saved my life. He was a school officer at John Oliver. Wow. Right? And uh, I said, oh, what happened? He says, well, I was involved with these other three guys, and we were doing gang-banging stuff and selling drugs. And he, he turned my life around. He got me out of it. I joined the soccer team. We won the BC Provincials. And now I'm a youth worker in Vancouver. I went to university. Wow. I said, well, good for you. He says, my three friends, they're all dead. I'm the only one alive. Wow. So he just felt like this program literally saved his life because he could have gone down the same, he was going down the same path. 
Oh, yeah. He'd yeah. be right there in a pine box with his three friends, right? Okay. It, it seems like this Vancouver School Board, though, uh, and there's a lot of pressure on them to shut this program down. Let me play this here for you, Doug. This is a, a grade 12 student who was on uh, the Global News last night, Owen Ebros, and here he is talking about his, his concerns and criticism with the school uh, police officer program. We know that law enforcement represents a larger message in, in today's society. Um, the uniform, the badge, the gun, it's sending a message, it sent a message to me for sure and to other students that that constable wasn't there to provide mentorship or, or to provide guidance. They were there to police us. They were there to uh, intimidate us. They are there to scare us into conforming to what the schools are, are hoping to see from us. Okay, Doug, what do you think about that as a guy who's known about this program, been involved in this program for so long? When you hear criticism like that, what do you think? Yeah, it, it's ridiculous. It, it's completely jaded for sure. Uh, you know, they, he doesn't talk about the officers coaching the athletic teams. He, he doesn't have, they don't have guns or uniforms when they do that, right? They're, you're basically on call. Those officers receive calls over the weekend when they're not working from kids at 2 in the morning who have a life-changing decision to make. They, they become like uh, sub-adults to some of those kids who have no uh, home life, right? No proper home life. They, they save them. And it, the big criticism as well is that, you know, police bury these kids and put them into the criminal justice system. Well, I got these stats that there's 7,000 reports ended up, uh, you know, kids were charged and stuff. In, in schools, two dozen of those 7,000 kids that were dealt with by the school officers actually went to charges. The rest were um, fixed by the police. You, you don't want to emerge a kid and throw them into the criminal justice system over something that can be dealt with. But do you, do you have a situation like if a police officer is in a school, they're doing school liaison, they're mentoring kids. If a police officer witnesses criminal behavior, whether it's an assault, drug dealing, they see a weapon, do those police officers then go into cop mode and they've got to, you know, potentially sometimes arrest, arrest a kid in a school? Well, certainly, if you're in, talking about uh, weapons or serious assaults and stuff, um, yeah, they, they have to intervene as policemen. But right. they would sit down with the counselors and the school staff. The, the school liaison officers work hand-in-hand hand with those principals and the teachers. And, you know, if, if you had all the teachers and principals phone in that are... Uh, love the relationship with the school officers, your phones would ring off the hook for a month because they have nowhere else to go. If you phone 911 to get a police in there, if, you know, if they weren't in there, uh, you're going to go in the queue. Yeah, right. There's other calls going on in the city, and you may not get a response for hours, even days, depending on the severity of the incident, sure. right? Yeah, certainly. All right, welcome back to the show, talking about police and schools programs. Some people want cops out of schools. My guest is Doug Spencer, 30 years with the VPD. He now works to keep kids out of gangs. Let's go to your call, Sim in Vancouver. Hi. Oh, hi. I just wanted to say that I grew up in the Bindi Joe Hall era, and it was not fun. It was not good. In fact, 
I could still say that I suffer from PTSD as a result of the fact that countless, countless numbers of young males, mostly, um, succumbed to gang violence and drug violence. And it has left uh, an indefinable scar on my person as a, as a being. It's having constables as part of our programs and communities it's it's a fantastic thing where did where are we going wrong where society of people in society feel as if having uh, you know constables in our school systems to gently you know show a better way to people who may not come from fortunate families who have the guidance and and a love love filled home with an upbringing i mean we're living in really critical times I think our young people in society can use as much help as they could possibly get. Yeah. I was there the night that Bindi Joe Hall got shot. You know, it was not fun. It was very unexpected. We were out celebrating. I mean, there are people who, by the time this pandemic is over, will go out and start celebrating again. And these drug gang wars will still be happening amongst the people who were involved in it. I say all the help we could get, the better. Okay, Sim, thank you for a great call. I appreciate that. What, what do you think about that, Doug? Like, it just seems like, especially right now with the gang wars raging again, I mean, this just seems like the precisely the wrong time to shut this program down. But your thoughts? Yeah, the, the kids need somebody to go to that they can trust. And the, the only way they're going to trust them is if the officer's in the school and has established the relationship and the respect of that school. I, yeah. I can tell you... Back in the day, they got a, a new chief in Vancouver from back east, and he stopped the program. That was one of his things to save the budget or whatever. And the gangs flourished, including that this is the Bindi Joel Hall area. They flew, flourished, and by the just that move, by taking them out, there was over 50 murders in the next two years because of that. Oh. And then my brother-in-law went back into J.O., and got the school back on board and or not the school, but the kids, they started believing in him and the assaults in that school went from 60 something per month to eight a month. And you're talking assaults, little pushing and shoving, but the 60, there was stuff with bats and knives. And uh, I'll tell you, you're just, you're heading the kids to disaster if you get those school officers out of there. Okay, let's squeeze in one more call. Sean on the line in Vancouver. Sean, we just got a minute, so you got to go quick. Go ahead. Yeah, our community officer at my children's school is just a fantastic guy. He volunteered his time to coach the girls' hockey team. Uh, he was loved by all the girls. I asked him one time, what's the toughest thing he ever did? And he said the toughest thing he ever did is when they had to arrest one of the students who was dealing hard drugs at the school. He felt horrific that this was going to impact his kid's uh, education. But to have somebody caring like that is, you know, as a society, we need to understand police aren't bad people. Are there bad things that happen? Yes. But as a parent, knowing that my kids have some level of protection against hard situations hard crime i can't tell you how much that makes me feel at ease okay and, great uh, sean think, sean thank yeah. you thank you for the call man i i appreciate it and we just got we got more callers waiting on the line uh, but sadly we're just out of time so doug we'll just have to have you back and and talk more about this i appreciate your time today thanks a lot you're more than welcome mike 
All right, welcome back to the show. Time to talk springtime pest control now. You got pests, rats, mice, ants, raccoons. Yeah, those trash pandas, they may look cute, but they can be nasty. My next guest does it all, Mike Laundry from Westside Pest Control, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show again. Hey, Mike. Hey, how you doing, Mike? I'm doing good. Thanks a lot for coming on. So, Mike, spring has sprung. The warm weather is finally starting to arrive. Is this a busy time in the pest control business? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We're uh, we're probably expecting the biggest uptick next week with that uh, beautiful weather coming. All the uh, the gardens come to life, and with it, the insects. Okay, what are the sort of the most common kind of calls that you get at this time of year? Uh, we're starting to get lots of calls for carpenter ants and pavement ants. The the wasp calls are trickling in, but not quite yet. Again, those will probably start next week. Okay, I had a little bit of an ant infection uh, but last year. How do you deal with those? Uh, so lots of different ways. It really depends on the type of ant. Do you remember, Mike, were they, were they little black ants or large ants? that were little, little ones. They were, they were small. They were little ones. Okay, so those are... Those are most commonly pavement ants in the greater Vancouver area. And um, uh, if you get them really early with, uh, with a domestic-grade uh, bait, and liquid bait is always the best, those little pucks that have a hard bait inside don't seem to work very good, but a liquid bait or, or a homemade bait with, with uh, any sort of sweet substance and borax is, uh, is going to work, work well to... Keep them at bay. Now, I say keep them at bay because pavement ants can number tens of thousands, and they're usually underneath sidewalks or slab-on-grade houses. So um, ultimate elimination is always difficult, but keeping the numbers uh, lower is certainly possible. Okay, what about, okay, here's one that I got, Mike, right now, and these things gross me out. I got them in my basement. They're, it's not like an infestation, but it still grows. It's silverfish, okay? Like silverfish. These things are just disgusting. And there's, yeah. there's not a huge... Like, how do I get rid of these things, man? Because they're gross. They've been disgust, disgusting since before the time of the dinosaurs. Oh, and yeah. uh, <laughs> they thrive in, in, uh, in, in temperate rainforests, just like ours. So they're not going anywhere soon. They don't cause any damage to the structure. They're not going to bite you. Um, but the best thing that you can do to reduce their numbers without any pesticide application is to reduce the humidity. So... Uh, a, a dehumidifier from a local hardware store for $75 will go a long way. And, uh, and so will turning on a bathroom fan or a kitchen fan. Those are usually the two places where people are, are spotting them. Um, I had one many years ago in the place I lived in, and I turned the bathroom fan on for a month, and that did the trick. Wow, okay, that's a great tip for sure. All right, I'm already getting uh, emails for you here, Mike. So Stephen says says to me in an email, I've trapped over 20 rats that have come from my neighbor's backyard. Uh, we're, not, we're not prepared to move from where we're living. They're difficult to get rid of. Do you got any suggestions? Well, hopefully they're still friends, um, him and the neighbor. Uh, 20 rats... <laughs> That's, that's a, a lot. That's a lot. That's yeah. a that's a ton. We're we're consistently seeing an uptick right across the Lower Mainland. Um, uh, it, there's, there's years where insects kind of ebb and flow, but the rodent populations don't seem to be the increase doesn't seem to slow down. Um, 
for the outside areas of the house, you're never going to rat proof the exterior of a home. Unfortunately, that just isn't possible. So um, the, the caller and his neighbor doing their best to keep foliage around the house, uh, a trim back because rats have sensors on their, on the hairs on their bodies. that says, I'm safe if, if, if I'm, if I'm covered from potential predators. So keeping areas around the house clear, obviously keeping garbage back, compost bins secure, um, and, uh, and any food sources, including bird feeders. Everybody loves oh. to fill up their bird feeders at this time of the year, but you should spend a little bit of extra money and buy a good one that's less likely to uh, to spill seeds all over the ground. Okay, and that's another really good tip. What's the what's the biggest rat infestation you've ever dealt with? Oh well, it's it's funny you say you say twenty. Um, uh, we we had a we had a client once who um, who had who had caught over thirty rats in a Ugh. in a month and. I'd never seen anything like it. We went and stood on her back deck, and any time during the day, you just saw them running around the yard, kind of like a few a few pets in the in the backyard. <laughs> um, uh, the most I've seen inside of a house was seventeen. Seventeen. Oh my god, that's brutal. Okay, raccoons. I remember the uh, last time I think you were on, Mike. You said that raccoons can be particularly nasty to deal with. Like they're really they can be really aggressive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you you definitely want to want to call us when it comes to raccoons, and and not just us. There's another great company in in Greater Vancouver that does more raccoon stuff than us, called AAA Wildlife. I would definitely recommend them as well. Uh, we're we're experts at getting them out of sheds and under decks and doing all kinds of fancy exclusion work to keep them from coming back. But um, if you've got them in your attic then yeah. you definitely mm. want to call someone in and you'll you'll know if you do if you hear scratching up above your head it's probably rodents if it sounds like there's actually a person living up there then <laughs> you've likely got raccoons all right welcome back lots of calls from mike laundry from Westside pest control so let's go right to it tina in pit meadows hi Good morning. Hi. I have caught, live caught, three little rats in my yard within the last three days. And at that time, they joined the relocation program. So how far should I take them away so they don't return? Okay. okay. You don't want to deal with it with extreme prejudice, huh? Okay. <laughs> no. All right, Mike, what I'm do you think? Them, I've taken them about two or three kilometers away down to the river in a bush area. Okay. So I don't know, Mike, do you think that's a good idea? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's great. I have, uh, you know, it's, it's great if you can do it in a humane way like that. I would say two or three kilometers, you might be catching the same ones again in the next day or two. Um, really? I would, uh, yeah, even, 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 even with, even with rats, with, with wildlife, you need to go, uh, larger wildlife, you need to go much further than that, um, uh, so with rats, I would say your, your best bet is actually to cross a body of water. Um, otherwise <laughs> I would go five to 10 kilometers. Okay, Tina, good luck with that. Let's go to Tom and North Van. Hey, Tom. Hi, how you doing? Good. Go ahead. Good. Just a question on carpenter rats. Sure. Uh, it's been an ongoing battle for me for about 10 years. Wow. Uh, and, uh, so at uh, this time of year when the weather starts getting nicer, um, they start appearing in the house and they don't present themselves outside yet but as it starts warming up uh eventually i can see where they're coming from 
um, and uh, I use Ant out, and they seem to, uh, you know, when I cut their path off that way, they end up going a different route. There's about six different paths that lead up to the house. And okay. just wondering how um, you go about uh, eliminating the problem. Okay, 10-year battle. Mike? Yeah, so 10-year t- battle, those carpenter ants are well-established. There's probably a parent colony as well as multiple satellite colonies, um, uh, potentially two parent colonies, depending on the size of the house and, and what, uh, what, what kind of wood is in the backyard or in the front yard. Um, so ant out is, uh, it, it's really, it's really going to be a, a band-aid treatment and, and at that possibly a band-aid that's not even big enough for the wound. I would be looking at, um, uh, you, you really need to get to, get to the nest. In most cases, you're going to probably need a professional to help with it. Um, but otherwise you're really going to want to start drilling and injecting into the wall voids, try to figure out where the parent nest is. That's usually going to be located where there's some moisture. So you may have had a leak five, ten years ago, which created um, uh, created some 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 wood rot, and there's still going to be some remaining moisture. They need a, a certain level of humidity for the queen um, to have her nest in the wall. So uh, really, really good detection and identification, and then drilling and injecting walls, and in some extreme cases, uh, you need to actually remove some of the siding to get to the nest. Oh, boy. Okay, Tom, sounds like you need some help, man. You bet. Maybe you better give, give Mike a call later, maybe. Carol in New West. Hey, Carol. Oh, hi. Right. I'm, call- I'm calling about a problem I have with the northern flickers. They keep insisting they want to make holes in the side of the house, and I don't know how to deter them from doing that every it's like a bir- year. It's like a bird, right? Yeah. Mike. A woodpecker, kind of. Hmm. Yeah, so at at this time of at this time of year, a flicker tapping on the side of the house can actually mean one of three things. They can be trying to establish a, a nest, and they'll be pecking away to try and find a soft spot to create a hole to to do that, as they would in a tree. Um, or it's it's possible that um, there's an underlying issue. Again, it's usually moisture ingress, um, which is created the perfect environment for some insects to be residing in that area. And, uh, and the third one is it's mating season. So they will just hammer away on objects, especially aluminum, metal. You'll often hear them on, on chimneys to try and attract uh, a mate. So um, w- one option is actually to do nothing. Um, and it may, it may just go away in the next few weeks. Um, Aside from that, yeah, you may want to investigate to see if there's an underlying issue and maybe some um, some moisture ingress, which is causing right. an insect population. Okay, Carol, good luck with that. Let's go to Mimi in Langley. Hi, Mimi. Hi there. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I have a similar problem with a woodpecker. Um, and the woodpecker, uh, we have a cedar house. And he made a hole, and he went right through to our living room. We did the owls, we did the balloon, and then we put a a steel plate there. Now he's moved to the chimney, and he's pecking at the chimney. I'm wondering, we're going to change the the front of the, like the the outside envelope of the house, um, and thinking of going to vinyl. Um, Mm. Would that help uh, instead of having a wood cedar house? Mike. Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, they're they're not going to have uh, the the same interest in the in the vinyl. Um, I mean, I I 
wood, wood siding is beautiful. So if you can if you can keep it just for the sake of the of the woodpecker, um, I would maybe try to try to battle it first. Um, companies such as ours will actually come in and put up a temporary netting over the areas of concern for six weeks until they're conditioned to go elsewhere. Um, huh. And then we come back and and remove it. So that might be a, a better option than redoing all the siding on the on the house. Um, but uh, yeah. ultimately, yes, vinyl would be better for woodpeckers. Okay, Craig on the line in Surrey. Hey, Craig. Hi there. I was just going to say for I usually wrap the tree in one sixteenth inch plexiglass, three feet wide, and then they can't climb it. Keeps the squirrels out of your attic too. So if they're already established, then you have to do as the man said. But to keep them from getting to your attic, I just wrap it with plexiglass at the base. Or I have a fence beside it, so I put it three feet above the fence. You're talking about you're talking about squirrels, squirrels or raccoons. I like to climb the trees. I just wrap it in three foot wide plexiglass, and then they can't climb oh. past the plexiglass. Well, what do you think of that, yeah. Mike? That's a that's a great idea. I mean, it's, there's always you're always trying to find the balance of practicality and aesthetics. So if the tree overhanging or being in contact with the house is just not something that you're willing to cut back then um uh yeah putting something around the base of the tree um is a is a perfect idea okay star 98 98 on your cell is the number to call susan and kitsilano hey susan hi how would you deal with moths in the house moths mike mm-hmm. do, do you know are they are they in your 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 clothing susan or in your in your pantry clothing in the clothing. Okay. Uh, so it's not a simple and, and, and easy process. Unfortunately, clothing moths um, are going to require removing everything. Um, all, of, all of the clothes need to be re- removed. They don't, need to be, they don't need to be laundered uh, com- completely, and they don't need to be dry cleaned, but they should all be removed and at least put through a, a, um, a high heat cycle in the, in the dryer to kill off the adults and, and any larvae. And then you are going to want to have a pest control company come in and and spray the empty space um, and then mm. wait one or two weeks before reintroducing the clothes again. Okay, Susan, good luck with that. Carol in Cloverdale. Hi, Carol. Hi. Um, Hi. I'm, you mentioned a recipe for um, getting rid of, like, those cement ants or whatever that you could do, a home brew or whatever. What would that consist of? Mike. Uh, yeah, so uh, any uh, one part, one part, Borax to two part juice is okay. uh, is a great is a great recipe. Um, any liquid bait that you can buy from the hardware store as well, um, they're not that expensive, um, is actually really good as well. So try try the try the borax. Um, right. So you can even you could even go three to four parts to to one at this time of the year because. Right now, they're just waking up. They're really weak. And if you give them a commercial-grade product, like we don't actually use commercial-grade bait this early in the year because what's going to happen is you'll just kill that ant, and they won't take it back and share it with the rest of their friends. What kind of, what kind of juice? Oh, anything. Uh, ap- apple juice, orange okay. juice, anything, anything sweet. Okay, Mike, we could fill the whole show with you because we got lots more calls that we've run out of time, but uh, we'll just have to have you back. Simple as that. Great. Thanks, Mike.